I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I would ask that you stand with me as we read part of Psalm 107 this morning. And then we'll look at the rest of the psalm as we go through the message. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Skip with me to verse 42. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. You may be seated. How appropriate for us this morning to have a song that proclaims boldly and without any hesitation, I am redeemed. I am redeemed. I have been bought with a price. I have been bought back from sin and from destruction, and I have been bought by the blood of Christ and brought through his purchase into the heavenly kingdom. Now, when you hear, I am redeemed, when you hear that phrase, you may not think about all of that. But that's the reality of that statement. Is that God has purchased us with a price. He has purchased us back from the dominion of sin and he has purchased us through the blood of Christ. We were a costly purchase. It costs God a lot. But we can proudly now say because we have been purchased by God that we are redeemed. This passage talks about that. Psalm 107 talks about that concept. But he is very specific here. And I I think it is very helpful for us because many of us, or I would say all of us, as we have been redeemed, as Christ has purchased us, has done so in different manners. Now, he has not used a different system. It has all been through Christ. But we have all been purchased out of different things. And this psalm really lays that out. And I I think it's very powerful in that way. And so I want us to look at that this morning. I want us to begin in verses 1 through 3. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. This seems to be a very simplistic thought. If someone had 
done something, if someone has done something for you that is so great and is so powerful, has such a dramatic effect on your life, shouldn't you want, above anything else, to share it with others? To tell someone, I've been redeemed. God has purchased me. The God of the universe who has created everything that is and everything that ever will be has bought me out of my sin and has brought me to a relationship with Himself. He has given me new life. He has brought me into His family. And the writer of this psalm here makes the simple statement. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Who are these redeemed? Well, it's whom He has redeemed from trouble. Trouble here is very vague. It's a very simple term, and yet He goes on to expand on it in in the verses that we have ahead of us. But He makes it very clear in verse 3 that He has redeemed us from a lot of different places. He says, "...and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south." To understand this in the Jewish culture, we need to understand that for them, the great promise that God has given is this place. We so often wonder, why would these people in the Middle East fight over this piece of land that really none of us would find that desirable? It's hot. A lot of it is covered in desert. You know, we live here in western North Carolina, the one of, to me, one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. North Carolina being the, the state where at one end you have beautiful beaches and the, the other end you have wonderful mountains. And in between you have a bunch of cities and, I don't know, we don't spend a lot of time there. I mean, who goes to central North Carolina on vacation? But you can go to the mountains and you can go to the beaches and it's wonderful. We have that. I understand why we would want to fight to keep that. But why do they fight over a strip of land that borders the Mediterranean Sea? Why do they go to war seemingly each and every year over that part of the land? It's because it's not about the geographical features of the land that draws them into it. It's because that is the place that God has promised them. We know that that's a fact for the Jews. We read about it in the Old Testament. The followers of Islam also claim that that is the place that their God has given them and they fight over it. And so here, it's important because they were scattered about and God has redeemed them from trouble and has gathered them in from the lands. He has gathered them in from every different place where they were at. Whether He gathered them in when He promised Abraham a land that He would show him and He called him out of his pagan culture and took him into the promised land. Or or whether it was the Jews who were captive in Egypt and He brought them out across the Red Sea and through the desert and into the promised land. And so now, regardless of where they have come from, as God has brought them together, as He has gathered them to Himself, as He has kept His promise, He tells them that they should proclaim that message boldly. 
Friends, you and I have been redeemed if we are in Christ. He has bought us. He has purchased us. He has brought us to Himself. And we should proclaim it boldly. We should be very clear in explaining to others how good our God is. We should make it a point to tell them constantly that God has brought us out of our darkness. He wants to give, or he does give, four examples here of where people have been redeemed from. And I think they're very interesting because I believe if you and I are honest with ourselves, we will find that our background comes, for the most part, out of one of these four situations. He begins in verse 4. He says, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them in their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. There are some people who God has brought from nothing. They've had nothing. This person described here is wandering in the desert with no city to dwell in. They're hungry and thirsty. I truly believe that that the writer here has God's people in mind. They're in the desert of Egypt. They're in the desert of the wilderness. They have no city. They have no place to dwell in. And God brings them out. He delivers them and He brings them to a city. What a powerful image that is for us as we look at this through the lens of the New Testament knowing that we have been promised citizenship in a holy city that never fades away. One whose walls will never be conquered. We are given that promise. They would see that as God's holy place. They would see that as Jerusalem and the city that God has set up. But you and I understand that he speaks here of a far greater city than that. He speaks of our permanent dwelling place with God. How many of us were in a place where we had nothing? Where we were at the end of our rope? where we had nothing ahead of us, we had no future, we had nothing that we could look to, and it was in that moment when we had nothing and could offer nothing that we cry out to God. In that moment, we turn and plead with Him. We beg for His forgiveness. We ask for His blessing. We we ask to be in a relationship with Him at that moment when we have absolutely nothing. That is the person that he describes here. A person who can bring nothing to God. Who has nothing to offer. But in verse 6, in that nothingness, they cry to the Lord. And He delivers them. 
if you'll watch as we look at each of these four situations, this is what happened. He calls on these people to turn from the place they're at and give thanks to God for what he is doing. Friends, maybe some of you are here this morning and that's the place that you have come to. You have nothing. Maybe you, you have a nice house and you drive a fancy car. Maybe your bank account is full, but you have come to the realization that you have nothing. If that's you this morning, let me promise you this, that in Christ you can have everything. Because there's far more people sitting here this morning who have very little in this life. They have very little in material possessions, but in Christ they have everything. For many of you, that's where God has brought you from. You got to the point where you realized you had nothing, and in that God spoke to you, you cried out to Him, and now let me tell you this, give Him thanks. Look in verses 8 and 9, he says, Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wonderful works and the children of man, for He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. If you have been redeemed from a place where you had nothing to the place now where in Christ you have everything, say so. Give the Lord thanks for that. Spread that news around in our church and in our community. Tell others of what God has done. The second thing, he says, some set in darkness. This begins in verse 10. Some set in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and had spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze, and he cuts in two the bars of iron. Some people God has delivered from things that are illegal, things that are criminal. He has in mind here someone who is sitting in the darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and iron, someone who has been imprisoned, Someone who has broken the law, whether man's or God's, and for it he is paying with his life. Their sin against God has landed them in chains. It's important for us to remember that when we commit a sin, it is ultimately against God. Now there are times when we have to pay for those sins with some type of criminal punishment. If you go speeding and the trooper pulls you over, you're going to pay the government for your sins. If you kill someone, you're going to pay our society for your sin. You're going to sit in jail behind these iron bars and you're going to be incarcerated, maybe for the rest of your life. But ultimately still, even in that situation, our sin is against God. 
And the good news for us this morning is that our God is big enough that He delivers people from things that are illegal. He delivers people from things that are criminal. I think it's interesting that He adds into this not only them sitting in darkness, and, but also in the shadow of death. Isn't it interesting that those who commit crimes in our society, those who do things illegal, are most often those people who live in constant fear of their own life. They're in fear that someone, because of their activities, are going to come and take their life. Someone is going to come and and remove them from the position they're in if they're committing some type of crime, or someone is going to seek retribution for something they have done and are going to bring them to a point where, where they die because of their criminal activity. He thinks about those people here. He thinks about those people who have lived lives that are very unpleasing to God, who are committing these crimes, who are being incarcerated because of it, and he tells us that God can bring them out of that, that God is able to deliver them from that sin, from that situation that they find themselves in, and deliver them into a relationship with him. In verse 13, as they sit there, their hearts bowed down. None to help, verse 12 says. And they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. Isn't it amazing? God, God delivers them and he, he bursts their bonds apart. He shatters doors of bronze and he cuts into the bars of iron. God delivers criminals from their sin. How sad it is that we so often in the church have no desire to see those people delivered. How sad that is. I sat down a, a couple of months ago, I guess it was, and I I don't know what made me do this. The, the, the news, I guess, mentioned something about someone dying on death row. And in the state of Texas, I guess it is, they record the, the final meal of every inmate who is put to death on death row and, and their final words. And it's saved, and they, they have it where you can go and read it. And I began to, to read the final statements of these people who were on death row. And I, I don't know how many I read, several dozen, I guess. I just kept going through it. It, just, it was so interesting to see. And, and so many were defiant until the last moment. So many admitted what they did and, and were proud of it. Even to the moment where a needle would go into their arm and they would go to sleep never to wake up again. But there were some. When you read what they wrote, or when you read what they had said, those final words in, in asking families for forgiveness, in, in asking victims for forgiveness, and finally making the proclamation that their life belonged to the Lord. 
I don't know enough about any of them to go back and say that they were genuine in this or if this is just something they said. They wanted to, to feel better with their conscience in their last moment of life. But how interesting to think that, that because there are people who are concerned and go into our prisons and go into our jails and they share the gospel with those who have been so terribly afflicted by sin that there are some even who have committed the most heinous crimes and are about to pay for it with their life to our society that in that moment they have the calm assurance of knowing that their sin has been taken off of their life and has been placed on Christ. That their terrible sin, the victims that they have, that God has looked on them and through Christ has forgiven them of their sin. How great a Savior we have that He is willing to look to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and offer them forgiveness. Friends, if God has delivered you from criminal activity, from sins of that nature, you should say so. Because our God is great in that. Our God is mighty to forgive. And what a great testimony that He saves us from that. Thirdly, beginning verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. This one's very interesting. The first time I looked at it, I misunderstood what the writer was saying. I thought he was originally saying that some of us were really dumb, and God saved us out of that. And friends, honestly, that's accurate. But it's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying some were foolish. Foolish means that they despised the wisdom and instruction of God. The proverb says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So they were being foolish, but God didn't save them out of their foolishness. But rather, he says here, their foolishness... At the end of verse 17, because of their iniquity suffered affliction. These are people that because of their sin against God, because of their disdain for God, and because of their foolish actions, end up causing themselves bodily harm. They end up getting sick. They end up getting some type of disease. They end up doing something that they shouldn't, and it causes them great harm because they are foolish toward God. We see that in our culture today. We see people who want to live the way they want. They want to do whatever they want, and it ends up causing them great bodily harm. These people are sick because of their sin. And because of that, they need healing physical healing because of their spiritual condition. I love how they're healed, however. Because they too cry out to the Lord in verse 19. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. I love the pattern here. It's not matter what the sin was so far. When they cried out to the Lord, He saves them. 
So look in verse 20. He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. The Word of the Lord comes and they are healed. What a great picture of what Jesus did during His earthly ministry. Think about how many times He came upon people that were sick. He came upon people who were hurting. And the Word, John calls Him, healed them. But here, these people are sick because of their sin. They're not just sick because sin exists in our world, but they are, sin- they are sick because of their sinful ways. And God delivers them. So he says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works and the children of man, and let them offer sacrifice of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in song and joy. Friends, if God has brought healing to your life, you need to say so. If God has brought healing to your life, you should testify of that. I am always appreciative of our doctors and our nurses. I'm thankful, especially when I'm in their care, and I'm sure you are as well. But we understand that ultimately, medicine has not provided us all the answers. If it had... We wouldn't be sick. If it had, we wouldn't have hospitals. If it had, we wouldn't have cancer and we wouldn't have to use medicines. We would be taken care of. We, we wouldn't have funeral homes because we wouldn't die. But God is our great physician. And when he brings healing, we need to testify thusly. We need to say so. The final example he gives is beginning in verse 23. And this one's a bit strange, honestly. And I think it's a bit strange because here's the one where these people weren't really doing anything bad. But trouble comes upon them. He says in verse 23, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his, wonderful, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works in the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. These men haven't done anything wrong. These people just went out. They went out on the ocean. They're fishermen or something. They, they have their business on the sea, and that's where they have gone to. As a matter of fact, it says that they were looking at the beauty of God's creation. They're seeing His wondrous works. But a storm hits. We get the picture that their ship is tossed about. Verse 26 says, they mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their ship goes up and then falls far down. 
Their courage melted away. They're scared. They stagger about the boat like they're drunk. Think about how many times we see this picture in the Bible. We see it with Jonah. We see when Jesus calms the storm. You know, the sea was a terrible place to be. There was no radio communication. There was no one you could call for help. There was no Coast Guard. You're out there on your own. And if your ship was destroyed, you were going to the bottom of the ocean. And that was going to be it. No one was ever going to hear from you again. They were not going to know where you sank at. They were not going to know how you died. So to go on a ship, to make these type voyages, you had to be a person of great courage. And even that melts away. Sometimes we... Come to God when we go through a storm and we've got nothing left. You know, much like the person in the beginning of, of these, the first person, he has nothing. Well, these people are not pictured as having nothing. They're pictured as having whatever they need. They're, they're doing business. They're doing well. And yet God sends the storm so that they will see their need for him. That's when some of you came to Christ. That's when some of you gave up doing your own thing and going in your own way and followed after him. It's when the storm hit and you realized that without him, you weren't going to make it. The storm hit, the waves were crashing to and fro, and you finally realized that you couldn't do it on your own. If that's the case, you should say so. If that's the case and you cried to the Lord and He listened and He saved you and He calmed the storm, He brought you to the place that you were needing to go, if He brought you that joy of, as verse 30 says, the waters being quiet, then you should say so. As a matter of fact, he's very specific here, and I think there's a point to this. Look who he says to be thankful to. First, he says, the congregation of the people. That was the gathering of the religious people. He says you should talk about it when you get to church. For them, you should talk about it when you get back to the synagogue and you're having worship. You should talk about the fact that God has brought you out of this storm. You should allow other people to celebrate that with you. It's exciting when God does something. It gives us hope. It gives us courage for the future. There's an old hymn. I don't know how old it is, but it, I've heard it so many times, I don't really like it that much anymore. But it says, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. What encouragement it gives me when I get to share in the joy that God is providing you. How helpful it is for me as your pastor when I get to hear that God is doing something in your life. Because maybe it's a day when I don't feel like He's doing something in mine. In the same way, I want to share with you when God does something in my life. Because it can encourage us. It, it pushes us along. It helps us to get through our own dark times, our own storms. We should share in the congregation of the people. But look at the other. Look at where else he says. And praise him in the assembly of the elders. 
This would be the public gathering. He says, don't just go to the religious gathering. Don't just go there and share this information, but rather share it in public. Elders here is is not talking about elders as we would think of in the New Testament, but in the the Old Testament time, and, and, and cities would have elders, the, the leaders of the city, and many times they would be religious, but this is a public gathering. It's not enough for us to share with each other what God is doing, but rather we must commit ourselves to sharing it outside of the walls of our church. To share with others what God is doing and how He is working in our lives. Share it to the religious and share it to those who are lost. Share the blessings that God has given. Now he closes out this psalm. He's given these four examples. And what do these four examples show us? I, I would say that at least elements of what God has done in our life falls into all of one or more of these situations. What does this tell us, though? He begins to lay that out for his readers in verses 33 through 41. He says, he turns, he's talking about God here, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He says, God can can mess everything up for you. God can punish evil And he can do so, and he does do so by making things very difficult on people. God doesn't let sin go forever. Isn't that a good thing that sometimes God punishes us? Because if he didn't, we would just go on doing our own thing forever. He would never call us out of that. He would never give us any reason to turn back to him. That's why sometimes when we see the great and powerful fall, it's not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, sometimes it saves their life. But then look what he also says. He says he turns, verse 35, a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste, but he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. He says the opposite is true. He says for his people he can do abundantly good. For his people he can do abundantly more than they could ever do on their own. Why? Why does he take these, these four examples? Why does he take the hungry? And why does he take the criminal? And why does he take the sickly? And why does he take the guy out on the boat in the middle of the ocean? Why does he, he take them from where they're at and he bring them to a place of goodness? Why does he give this guy wandering in the desert a city to live in? It's because he can. It's because he's in control. It's because God is in control of what is happening. It's it's because these people turned to Him and cried out for His mercy. They turned to Him from their sin. 
I think it's interesting in verse 39, and maybe this applies greatly to our society. He says, when they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. Friends, as our society continues to pour contempt on the church and on the people who make it up, they will continue to suffer as a society. And maybe it feels like we have to suffer along with them, but God punishes people who turn on his people, who oppress his people, who push out his people. Imagine what God would do to our nation if instead of oppressing the church, our nation embraced the church. These sound like good things that happen. When God turns deserts into pools of water, when he feeds the hungry, when he gives abundantly. But friends, when when his people are oppressed, God is not happy. And he deals with them accordingly. God takes care of those in need. And in all of these situations, he shows great power. And friend, in God saving you, he demonstrated his great power because you were unworthy of being saved. God wasn't looking around one day and saw you and went, there's a good one. There's one that's not going to take a lot of work. There's one that's going to be easy. He looked at every single one of us and the righteousness that we had, the thing that mattered to him most, the way that we stood before him was dirty and filthy and vile. But he covers us with the blood of Christ. He covers us with the blood of Christ and we are forgiven through Christ and he can look on us and he no longer sees that filth that was there, but he sees his son and his goodness and his righteousness and he gives it to us. He redeems us with it. Why? Because he is in control. So what do we do with it? I want to close with this. Verses 42 and 43 Verse 42 kind of concludes that last section where he he talks about pouring contempt on the people who oppress his people. And he says, The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. When we see God work, when we see God give us good things, when we see God take, take a desert land and make it full of water, when we see God take the hungry and help them dwell in a city, and we see God give abundantly, we should rejoice. We should rejoice when it happens to the people of our fellowship. We should rejoice when when we see it happen to our friends. I found sometimes when you spend time with other pastors, it's very sad, you, you... would say something like, you know, someone was saved this morning in church. And miraculously, two people got saved at their church. Now, they didn't really, but, you know, they got a, two is more than one, so they've got to say two. You know, or we had, a, we had a good offering this morning. Well, we had a better one. Well, we're building a new gym. Well, we're building two, you know. I mean, it gets into that type of craziness. Why? Because we've got this natural inclination to want to outdo each other. And yet God says we're a family who he has brought together to be one. 
And so when we see God working in the hearts and lives of our brothers and sisters, we should rejoice. We should celebrate it. It's hard because our first instinct is to think, I wish God would do that for me. And yet I've never believed that anyone was more blessed than I was. How could God bless someone more than he's blessed me? You should have that feeling too. There's no way, no matter what God does, he has blessed me more than he's ever blessed anyone else. So I rejoice when I see that he's blessing others. I rejoice when, he, when I see him working in the lives of other people. So we should rejoice, but secondly, he says, the wise man considers the love of God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him think about these things. Let him be a part of these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. He contrasts foolishness here and wisdom. The wise is considering what God has done. Is considering what the Lord has given us. What the Lord has done for us. Friends, you and I as believers in Christ should live a life that testifies about the redemption that God has given us. The way we act. The way we spend our time. The way we spend our money should reflect the fact that God has redeemed us. We should dedicate ourselves to that fact. Because the truth of the matter is, there are hundreds and thousands of people who live in our community who do not know the name of Christ. I didn't say in another world. I didn't say in another another place, another country. I didn't say in another ethnic group. I didn't say somewhere else. I said here. They don't know Christ. And the only way they will know Christ is for us to testify about Him. For us to testify about what He has done in our lives and in the lives of others. It's the only way they're going to have any hope. I go back to thinking about those final words that I read of those people who were executed. And I think about those people who went boldly to death with no hope. It's what our society has become. It's what atheists proclaim. That we should boldly face death, knowing that there is nothing else out there. That we should live life however we want and go to death knowing that it's just darkness it's nothingness and friends that's how most people are living their lives and so when they come to that moment when they're about to die they they're not worried about it because they don't believe there's anything else out there they've done everything they could do and they're just going to die and be nothing anymore but friends we know that's not the case Because the Bible promises us that every one of those men who were strapped to that table, who had that needle plunged into their arm, who did not know Christ and boldly went into death, rejecting Him, died and went straight to hell. With no hope. Friends, we can fight that. And we can do so by boldly proclaiming that we have been redeemed by God.
Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, we're grateful that we have a day where we can come in and we can worship you. God, I'm grateful for everyone gathered here. God, that they come. They come each and every week to to sing praises to you. To hear your word proclaimed. God, I pray that, that as we go from this place, that we go, God, we go to proclaim who you are. We go to say that we are redeemed. God, that you called us out of our, God, the place where we had nothing. You, you called us out of our our worldly living, you called us out of our sickness, you, you, you called us out of, out of storms, God, you called us out of all situations that we were in, all the sin that we found ourselves trapped in, you called us out of that, and you called us to yourself. God, that in our desperation, we cried out and you heard us, and God, we give thanks to you for that. Lord God, if there are those here this morning who who reside in their desperation, who live in their sin, God, I pray that you are speaking to them even now. But God, for those who are called of your name, let us proclaim what you have done. And God, I pray that as we do, lives will be changed. Our community will be touched. And God, you'll get the glory for it. God, I pray that you work during this time. God, that you work in our midst. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we're going to sing a closing song. A song that invites you to respond. You know, really God's word is God's word is not making much of an impact on us if we don't respond. And I don't mean responding by coming up here and praying. You're always welcome to do that. But, but would you tell someone this week that God has changed your life? That's how we respond to his word. That's how we respond to what he has done. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, the invitation is always open for you to cry out to him. He saves you. He gives you grace and peace. He asks you to come. That's, that's, his, that's his calling. It's for you to respond to him. Not, not to me or, or not to our music, but respond to what he has said. I can share with you how to do that, but you, you have to respond. I invite you to consider that this morning. We're going to sing, and you, you listen to what God has said.